Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Today, once again, we are revisiting the case of Stephen Avery, made famous by the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. But before we truly begin, just a couple of quick reminders. The first is that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad One, that's the audio version as a pure podcast. And if anybody would like to make a contribution to support this show and these efforts, you can go over to buymeacoffee.com, there's a link to that in the description box, and all supporters will get a shout-out on Zodiac Monday. This episode is meant to have two major objectives. The first is simply to explore the story of Stephen Avery, his nephew Brendan Dassey, and the victim in this case, Teresa Hallback. And the second one is to be the concluding episode of the book discussion on Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery by John Farrakh. If you haven't heard the previous segments, the first two of them, that's fine, you can keep listening. I truly wanted this episode to be a standalone segment, or it can be part of the ongoing series. And if you haven't heard the previous two part of, uh, two parts of this series, I would like uh, to invite you to give it a listen. And also, I've noticed that there have been a lot of mixed comments in the section down below for a lot of people who believe that Stephen Avery is innocent of the crimes that I will be discussing in this episode. But then there are several people who believe very passionately that Stephen Avery is guilty of said crimes. So I want to read your responses, share anything that you would like, give me your side of the story and your interpretation of the evidence. And before I get to the material from the book Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, I wanted to go to an article from the La Crosse Tribune that I thought presented a very strong timeline for the case of Stephen Avery and the murder of Teresa Holbach from 2005. And I particularly like this timeline because in the first episode that I ever did on Stephen Avery, I read off a different timeline and it was going all the way back to the 1980s with some of the crimes that Stephen Avery was wrongfully accused for, got sent to jail for, and then later on was exonerated because of DNA. But let's look at what happened after Stephen Avery gets out of prison for a crime that he didn't commit, he is planning to file a $36 million lawsuit, or has it in the works, and the state, the county, everyone is going to be rather terrified of that. But what is going to happen next? And this is from the La Crosse Tribune, also the Associated Press. A timeline in the Stephen Avery case. On October 31st of 2005, a woman named Teresa Hallback, age 25, of St. John in Calumet County, was a photographer for Auto Trader magazine. She goes to Avery's Auto Salvage near Mishicot to photograph a minivan for sale by Stephen Avery's sister. And as I understand it, Teresa Hallback was a freelance photographer. November 3rd, Hallback's family reports her missing, and the authorities launch an investigation. November 5th of 2005, Hallback's cousin finds her vehicle under brush and auto parts in the Avery Salvage Yard. And one thing that I say very frequently on this channel is, the Avery Salvage Yard, if you haven't seen Making a Murderer, is and was enormous. They had over 3,000 vehicles in the salvage yard, and one uh, source even said they had over 4,000 vehicles. So this isn't just like the junkyard that is down the little country road that has a couple of spare parts and a couple of old clunkers. Much bigger place than that. So in terms of how somebody would go about trying to hide a vehicle, 
November 8th of 2005. Avery, then 43 years old, tells reporters that he fears the authorities are trying to frame him for Hallback's murder because he sued Manitowoc County officials for $36 million for a wrongful conviction he experienced in the 1980s. Avery was freed from prison in 2003 after DNA evidence cleared him of a 1985 rape which he served 18 years of. November 9th of 2005, Stephen Avery is arrested on, on past convictions as well as for other crimes and charged with possessing firearms as a felon. Authorities say they found two guns in his trailer home. November 15th of 2005, Avery is charged with first-degree murder and first-degree intentional homicide and mutilating a corpse. He is ordered to be held on a $500,000 bail. Now we're into 2006, February 14th of that year. Authorities announced that Avery has settled his lawsuit against Manitowoc County officials for $400,000. And they talk about that very clearly in making a murderer. The $400,000 would go directly to his new legal bills, so it's not like there's some type of giant windfall in $400,000. The Allback family files a wrongful death suit against Stephen Avery. But then in March, on March 2nd of 2006, Avery's nephew, Brendan Dassey, then 16 years old, is charged in adult court with being a party to first-degree intentional homicide, mutilation of a corpse, and first-degree sexual assault. Prosecutors base the charge on a confession Dassey allegedly made to the police. And I would say that it's a little bit more than allegedly made. Brendan Dassey definitely confessed to some involvement in these crimes. However, even though I said some of you in the comments section are saying very passionately, that they think Stephen Avery's guilty of the murder of Teresa Hallback. It is going to be a very, very difficult uphill battle for you to convince me that Stephen Avery's nephew, Brendan Dassey, had any real involvement in her death. Because all I'm seeing from the sources is that he was someone who was duped into confessing into something that he didn't understand. But that leaves the question of, if it, if it weren't, wasn't these guys, well, then who did commit this crime? And what does the evidence actually say? March 31st, Avery tells the Associated Press he thinks the investigators coerced Dassey into a confession. September 25th, a judge says Avery's past crimes cannot be used as evidence when they go to trial. Court records and police say Avery's criminal history, including burglary and animal abuse, and the attempted abduction of a Mishakot woman in 1984, our previous crimes. Now, here's one of the hard facts that I think all of us have to accept, and some people don't want to accept this very willingly, but it is that just because somebody committed a burglary in 1983 or something like that, that doesn't mean that they're guilty of a murder in 2005. Just because they committed crime A it does not mean that they committed a crime B. Sure, you're going to have some type of suspicion on that person, but that should not pass the test of reasonable doubt, nor is it even relevant to the particular crimes. I mean, I, maybe if they want to talk about something that is more similar, but something such as burglary, that doesn't mean that he's actually guilty. And at this point, I'm not even thinking so much about the law and the legal system and the courts and what is admissible in court. I'm thinking about what actually happened. 
and burglary and murder are two very different crimes, and I know that the prosecution would like to paint a picture that Stephen Avery was a criminal before he was wrongfully convicted of the uh, rape of Penny Bernstein back in the 1980s, but that still does not mean that he committed the specific murder of Teresa Holbach and in 2005, so um, that's where I stand very clearly on that particular issue. Now, I would like to get to the book Rick and Crew by John Farrock and go from uh, chapter 13 all the way to the end. And I'm going to be responding to some of these chapters mm, more or less out of order. As I said, there were two people who were ultimately convicted in this, Stephen Avery and his nephew Brendan Dassey. And this book, Rick and Crew, takes a very persuasive stance. It is trying to persuade you that Stephen Avery was not guilty of these crimes, and he's actually been spending decades behind bars for two different crimes that he did not commit. But I'd like to go to page 286 in the book because this was something that I think would jump out at anybody reading it. In the spring of 2018, Avery's dogged post-conviction lawyer Kathleen Zellner made a discovery that rocked her world. It was a bombshell piece of evidence that she realized Avery's original criminal trial lawyers, Buting and Strong, did not know about. It was evidence that should have been tendered to them back in 2006, long before their clients stood trial for Teresa's murder. It was a crucial item of evidence that Special Prosecutor Ken Kratz and his loyal lead investigator Tom Fassbender did not want Avery's side to gain access to. And I was just reading the book, and I was like, oh my god. Please tell me, tell me, tell me. I mean, like, if they want to get your attention, that is one way to do it. On April 21st of 2006, Fassbender and Mark Weird seized the personal computer and a dozen computer disks from Barbara Genda's home. That is uh, Brendan's mother. They wrote their, in their reports, and they wrote their reports in a way to make it appear as if the computer belonged to Brendan Dassey and that their evidence gathering focused on the 16-year-old boy. Nothing could be further from the truth, though. The next day, the computer was delivered to the Grand Shoot Police Detective Mike Vealey by Fastender. Vealey was considered the region's law enforcement expert on computer forensics in the original criminal investigation. By May 11th of 2006, they had returned the evidence back to the authorities in Fastbender, who then decided to sit on the information that way, the defense didn't have it in a timely fashion. Seven months later, some of the information that was extracted from Dassey's computer was shared with Strong and Buting. The most noteworthy details that were shared were part of the investigation, and they were never shared with Avery's trial lawyers. Now, as far as I understand, though, I am not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but as far as I understand, the prosecution has to turn over everything to the defense. And if they do not do so, then they would be violating somebody's right to a, to a fair trial. And I think that um, I'm just very surprised that that hasn't come up more in the story of making a murderer, somebody getting their rights violated in some way. Because I'm just truly shocked that Brendan Dassey was convicted of anything. Because, as I understand, again, you're not supposed to convict someone if there is reasonable doubt. And I just um, 
I can't see how anyone would think that there's something beyond a reasonable doubt that Brendan Dassey was involved with the murder of Teresa Hallback. I mean, even if he did confess to it, the possibility of being duped or coerced into the confession is so great that, I mean, you would have to consider it. I mean, anyone who was paying attention would have to consider it. And now the plot is even going to thicken a little bit more because the report refers to the examination of Brendan Dassey's computer. And again, I'm just quoting from 287 in the book. There is absolutely no proof that the computer belonged to Brendan Dassey, and there is no proof that it was primarily used by Brendan Dassey. There is proof that it was primarily used by his brother, Bobby. And I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not going to accuse Bobby Dassey of anything. I am not going to weigh in on any type of persuasive thing. I'm only going to relay some of the interpretive messages that are found in this book, Wrecking Crew, because as a persuasive book, it does take a strong stance that Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, could have had some involvement in Teresa's homicide. But back to the book. The report minimizes the number of violent pornographic images and the severity of the violent pornographic images and incriminating word searches that demonstrate an obsession with inflicting pain on young females, dead female bodies, and mutilating female bodies. It also ignores the timeline of the images being viewed, which excludes other members of the family and incriminates Bobby. After all, it's an undisputed fact that some of Teresa's charred bones were found inside Bobby Dassey's burn barrels. And uh, yes, Teresa Hallback was murdered, and her body was mutilated and burned, and her remains were found on the Avery property in what is called a burn pit. So a lot of dis destructive actions happened to Teresa. Absolutely saddening, and I never get used to hearing about it. A big rest in peace to her. But um, I would like to jump ahead to a different section in the book, because what do you make of this, that someone is Googling these types of searches? What do you make of someone going on the internet and reading about this type of material, inflicting pain on women? And no matter whose computer it was, what does that say about their mental state? And this book here tries to present some of, somewhat of a response. This is from page 299. The searches speak to the compulsive nature of the offender, specifically the sadism as the fantasy life translate into the compulsion to act out the sadistic fantasy. Example, a sexual homicide. A person obsessed with violence is more likely to commit a murder than someone who is not obsessed. And I think at this point, though, I have somewhat of a disagreement with this type of um, thinking. And I know that I'm not a professional. I know I'm not some type of expert. And there actually are talking to experts and doctors in this book. But it really depends on like how you're interpreting the words like pornographic material or violence. I mean, you're talking about getting in a fistfight or you're talking about actually committing murder. If you mean that if someone is exposed to imagery of people being hurt or injured, violence taking place, does that mean that they're going to be likely to commit murder? No, I don't think so, because we're exposed to it so frequently in the mainstream media throughout movies and television and even pornography. Yes, yes, indeed, porn too. 
but I definitely don't think that any type of um, behavior like that that is depicted on film is going to encourage homicidal behavior in someone, but if they just simply mean that a person who is obsessed with violence is more likely to commit murder, when they talk about someone who is um, exhibiting some type of immediate urge to commit these actions, then yes, indeed, that would. But just as a blanket statement, I mean, obsessed with violence, I guarantee you out there some, somewhere in the United States of America, there's some teenager who is playing violent video games all day long, and they're not going to kill anyone. I guarantee you out there that there is another teenager, maybe an early 20-something guy, who's watching a lot of violent pornography, and he's not going to kill anyone. And maybe if they have some type of correlation, then they could show that, okay, that their findings are correct. But I'm just not convinced. Because, believe it or not, I'm actually somewhat hopeful of humanity. And I think that people have somewhat of an awareness of the differentiations between fantasy and reality, and if they don't, then they're in a different category involving mentally ill behavior, mental illness, and a lack of mental awareness. So um, I just wanted to respond to that directly. And I'm fully, fully aware that I could also possibly be dancing around the subject, and then you could just view it as an elephant in the room and be like, yeah, if somebody is reading up on a bunch of a bunch of twisted things like this, that usually means that they um have some type of homicidal tendency. I'm I'm fully able to examine both sides of the situation. Have you ever heard that expression that every coin has two sides? Absolutely, that is true. And you can uh, give your response to any of this uh, material in the comment section down below. So, I next want to go to a different point in the book, and this is perhaps going to spoil the ending for you a little bit, but that's the thing about true crime books. It's about the facts, and it's about the persuasive points, and it's about the interpretations of the evidence. So even if we're going to the last pages of Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, well, just get ready for it. This is some of the evidence that they are presenting that they claim should demonstrate that Stephen Avery did not commit the murder of Teresa Holbach. Now, you might be wondering, how was the murder committed? And firstly, the prosecution put forward the theory that both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey sexually assaulted Teresa Holbach by keeping her legs pried open and more or less securing her with leg irons. I shouldn't have said pried open. They said uh, they secured her legs with leg irons, and then they believe she was sexually assaulted and then murdered. How was she murdered? This um, page in the book says right here, shot with a twenty-two caliber bullet. And let's hear about some of the forensic investigations that the defense team used to try and show some evidence to the contrary. And... Zellner's favorite find, she said, was dismantling the prosecution's theory that Teresa was shot in the head with a twenty-two caliber bullet, which was laying in Stephen Avery's garage. But they had just missed the finding in the first six months that they had searched the garage for hard evidence. They couldn't find it. Couldn't find it? Couldn't find it? Couldn't find it? Oh, and they found it. And then they said, whoa, it's got her DNA on it. 
and then with the state's permission, Zellner got to bring the bullet to the Microtrace laboratory, which solved the Unabomber case and numerous airline crashes. It's probably the best forensic trace laboratory in the world. And they took it under the microscope, a very sophisticated microscope, and they said, oh, that bullet? That bullet's got red paint on it and wood. So wait a minute. Where's the bone? If you shoot a twenty-two through somebody's head, I don't care how many times you shoot it. The lead is so soft it's like a sponge. It's going to have bone on there. So then I flew to Arizona. I hired Luke Hag, and we went out into the desert, and we shot twenty-twos through bovine bone, and every single one of them was embedded with bone. So what do we know? We know that the twenty-two was stuck in the Avery's garage, and it was stuck in the wood, and they just pried the thing out there. They pried it out of there. Again, we found her DNA that traced back to what DNA of was hers, and they used to put on there, because it was also wax, and it had wax on it, and they just happened to have had her chapstick. And I think that before I read anything further, I would just um, want to be very clear and hope that people understand that. They're saying that they allegedly have recovered the bullet, they meaning the authorities, and it, if, it, if she had been shot with the twenty-two, and it had gone through her head, there should have been some type of microscopic bone fragment left on the bullet, and they shot numerous bovine bones, cow bones. Every time there are bone fragments on the bullet, but they're not on the bullet that involved uh, the death of Teresa Hallback. In the theory, in the theory, so Kathleen Zellner and John Farrock are taking the persuasive stance that that theory is completely wrong. And the um, final lines of the book says the, they want to challenge the forensic evidence. Why? Because he's innocent. And you can uh, share all of the things you want to hear about um, Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, and the murder of Teresa Hallback. But I said that what I was going to be discussing chapters 14 until the end. And there's a particular section in the book that I think could be its own Anything Goes Friday segment, and maybe it will be in the future, because in the middle section of the book, there actually is a rather long story of somebody named Ricky Hochstetler, and it's the story of how somebody was killed in more or less a hit-and-run, and then the authorities covered it up. Why? Because the person who did it was connected to a high-ranking group of individuals, or just like the local politicians, people who were somewhat affluent in the community. And I'll just have a very quick read here. Once again, this is from Wrecking Crew, page 147. The winter of 1998 marked a contentious time for the husband and wife who rented the two-story farmhouse on the far southern outskirts of Manitowoc, once that winter, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office responded for a domestic violence call. The couple were in the midst of a bitter divorce. They had three children, and one of them was a teenage boy named Ricky. He had a part-time job at the Manitowoc Hardee's, and he liked to hang out with his friends. On Ricky's last night alive, he was dropped off at a house in Manitowoc. Ricky endured a brutal, agonizing death. He was struck from behind by an intoxicated motorist right around bar-closing time. 
The hit-and-run driver who plowed into Ricky and continued driving was already outside of Manitowoc city limits, making it highly unlikely the inebriated motorist lived in Manitowoc. Three very small communities were in the general vicinity of the drunken motorist's paths. The town of Newton, the village of Cleveland, and the village of Keele. Based on the travel route, a number of other small Manitowoc communities were also virtually nearby, but still out of the question. On page 155 of the book, there is even a caption that says, Before the Teresa Halbach case came along, there were already strong suspicions that the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office covered up the hit-and-run homicide of Ricky Hochstetler, age 15, age 17, excuse me, age 17, to be clear. And this will uh, conclude the discussions on the book Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery by John Farrock. And I have to give a big shout-out to Jerome, who runs a channel called The French Wrecking Crew, nonetheless, who provided me with a copy of this book. And I had the opportunity to discuss um, the case with Jerome, the case of Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, and the murder of Teresa Hallbach, because I was rather puzzled by some things. This is not the first book that I have read about the case. The first one was Illusion of Justice by... Jerry Buting, and of course I watched the Netflix series Making a Murderer, seasons one and two, and yet I still didn't feel like I truly understood what was happening in the story. I feel I felt like I didn't understand all of the elements, and the response that I got from Jerome was that he has been following the story for five years, and he doesn't know the entirety of it, maybe only about 70%. So I think that there are a lot of complicated twists and turns, and even in the book Ragging Crew, it talks about how there is over a 1,000-page case file for the murder of Teresa Holbach, over 1,100 pages, actually, and it really is quite difficult to try and differentiate between all of the theories that people have, especially when both sides don't even want to get the exact truth. They just want to win the case. That is the function of the legal system they want to win. But as far as I've gathered from everything that has been shared by Kathleen Zellner, who is featured on the cover of the book Wrecking Crew, it seems like she is a genuine believer that Stephen Avery is innocent and that he was framed. And what the book Wrecking Crew is trying to do is to show that this isn't something that is completely out of the ordinary. This isn't something that is unheard of or too ridiculous to happen, is even trying to provide another example of a case where the the uh, residents of the county, I shouldn't say the residents, the members of law enforcement and the local officials covered up a crime because it was connected to someone who had a certain amount of power within the community. And there are other parts of the story that I didn't read about how Ricky died near a very prestigious and affluent restaurant called the Belmar, and they have reasons for this that I don't want to elaborate on because it would take another 27 minutes to do that. But I think that um, it's, go, it's really trying to show that this isn't something that is so extreme or absurd that it couldn't possibly be true, and it's not just some type of wild theory that Stephen Avery was framed, that sometimes these police cover-ups do indeed happen. And I think Wrecking Crew is taking a very strong stance that they believe that the bullet that was taken from Stephen Avery's garage was not involved with the murder. It didn't have bone fragments on it, which it should have, microscopic bone fragments, that is, 
and they believe that Teresa's DNA was planted on there, as well as the entire scene being staged. I don't have the part bookmarked, but there's a section in Wrecking Crew where they talk about some of these suspicious activities of Bobby Dassey, that he made numerous comments about Teresa Hallback before she was murdered, and he would even say some things that seemed a little bit odd, such as telling Stephen Avery, oh, is your girlfriend coming back today, talking about Teresa Hallback, and it showed that he had some type of, um, not exactly an obsession, but more like an infatuation with her, and I don't want to say anything more than that, because what's my favorite saying? Being weird is not a crime, and I'm, I absolutely do not want to accuse him of anything, because I'm at the level where it is all uncertain for me, and also to accuse somebody of a crime without the smoking gun who is currently alive is really not the best strategy, but that is something that is expressed here in this book, Wrecking Crew, that Bobby Dassey, I mean, maybe I said Brendan earlier by mistake, Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, could have been involved. Bobby Dassey, to be very clear, is the one who was making the statements about um, Teresa Hallback and um, the one who had the infatuation with her. I definitely hope that I said the right name, but I think we'll have to leave it there for now. And in conclusion, I would just want to ask you guys, what do you think about someone who is regularly exposed to violent imagery? Will that make them violent, or do you think that the majority of people have the ability to differentiate between, okay, that's just fiction and entertainment, and this is reality? I would love to know your response to that challenge question, and anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, and there is always blackboxnet88 over on Instagram. See you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.